Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. Give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll I'll even kiss the men. I'll kiss those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by T, the Empowerment Alliance. The Empowerment Alliance fights for affordable, clean, domestic, and abundant energy for America's energy independence. They want to keep the politics in this podcast and out of the energy industry. If you want to learn more about what the Empowerment Alliance is fighting for or help support the work they're doing, please visit their website, which will be linked in the show notes. I can tell you they are incredibly passionate about promoting America's energy independence, And I hope you'll check them out, sign up for their newsletter, and see what they've got going on. Show them some love. They make this show possible. All right. So welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your diminutive ATM of reckless opinion. Grab yourself a cup of coffee, and let's get into it. And uh, today I'm rocking with uh, my my good old go-to, some dark roast. So uh, there we go. Mmm. I'm surprised, you know, Starbucks hasn't sponsored me yet. All right. So a little bit of housekeeping today. So first off, um, last week's episode on the sedan is posted correctly, and it's all working properly on Spotify. Um, But there's been some issues with it on the Apple podcast. Um, Basically, the uh, show notes, uh, the episode itself isn't showing up, but the notes for it have overwritten the prior episode. I don't know what's going on with that. I'm working with my producer. It, it's doing it correctly on Spotify. There's some sort of a problem with Apple. They're they're working with Apple to try and fix it. So hopefully by the time this episode goes live, that'll be sorted out. But the uh, production team here at OGGN is working on that, and sorry for any hassle there. Uh, second thing, I've gotten a ton of great questions uh, from you guys, the listeners, uh, from the 13 of y'all. And um, so the Q&A episode, which I'll probably record, I'm thinking next week, I might do something a little special for it. We'll see. I don't want to tip my hand too much, but I might might do something a little special for it. But i got a stack of great questions. Keep sending them in. I've got a ton, actually. Um, and what I might start doing, I haven't really made up my mind yet, but some episodes I might just have a little short segment where I hit one or two because i got a ton of questions and um, – and I really enjoyed doing that. It was a lot of fun and, and getting to engage with you guys. So keep sending them in, uh, and we'll be doing that Q&A session um, next episode. And, uh, yeah, I think it'll be fun. I think it'll be, think it'll be pretty good. Okay, so what do we got going on? So today we're going to do kind of around the horn, hit uh, sort of each continent, and talk about what's going on there that's relevant or interesting. So the first thing, uh, we're going to hit up Middle East, and we're going to talk about uh, – Iranian Shah Muslim cleric Ayatollah Ababasali Soleimani, and uh, I'm certain that uh, even with my Arabic heritage, I'm mispronouncing that. Um, at any rate, he was shot in the back at a bank. He was uh, one of 88 clerics on the Assembly of Experts 
which is the assembly which appoints and can technically, although you'll never see it happen, remove the supreme leader of Iran. Uh, at any rate, he was going to a bank on personal business um, the other day, and someone just went off and shot him in the back. Now, there's a video recording of this that seems to make it look like the one of the guards at the bank pulled his pistol and just shot the guy, you know, right then and there. The official storyline that the um, Iranian government is putting out is that the bank guard's gun was taken by some other bystander and the guy was shot. They're, for some reason, they're not wanting to – it looks like in the video it's one of the bank guards because it's a uniformed individual that was already in the bank. Um, but for some reason, the Iranians or the, the the government in Iran is is saying it was someone else. And I don't really know. Maybe that's – I don't know. I don't know. I mean, obviously, we're not going to get a lot of real crystallized details from Iran. They certainly don't like admitting when their clerics get whacked. And um, so, yeah, I don't know that we're going to get a whole lot of clarity on that. But, you know, some just random Joe Blow bystander popping off a cleric, uh, especially one that's that prominent, that's on that um, assembly of experts, that's kind of a big, hairy deal. And this isn't the first time that clerics have been attacked in Iran. Just last April, uh, two clerics were killed, and a third one was injured in a knife attack at a local shrine. And this is really interesting because you're seeing more and more violence in Iran, at least that we're hearing of in the international news coming out against these clerics. And with all the protests and the, the more moderate Iranians that are really tired of the super hardline religious theocracy, um, I think we're going to see more and more of this violence towards clerics. And I think what's ultimately going to happen is that's going to put us in a situation where we're seeing, um, we're going to see, you know, really, Potentially really bad crackdowns on this if it continues. I mean, again, knocking off somebody who's that high up the food chain and the um, on the theocracy, there's going to be some consequences for that, and I, I don't think there's any two ways around it. So I do believe the guy that uh, did the shooting here has been captured. He's arrested. Um, and so we pretty much are, are certain to see some kind of yeah, I, I mean, he's going to be killed, obviously. I mean, and there's no two ways around it, not to ruin your uh, your evening cup of coffee. But yeah, he's that guy's a dead one. Uh, he ain't going to make it. So, interesting. So that's what we got going on in Iran. Obviously, the political situation around the nuclear weapons, the, you know, the oil embargoes, and now they've got their alliance with Russia, and they've got, you know, relations with China and all this. I mean, it's, it's a messy situation, and honestly... Um, you know, the best case scenario would be to see some sort of an actual revolution where the, the theocracy is overthrown and some semblance of a quasi-democratic government is installed. And I don't think we're particularly close to that outcome, but I do think we are going to start seeing more and more anti-government violence over there the way things are going. So, something to keep an eye out for. Meanwhile, in uh, Africa, so obviously the last episode, which is hopefully uploaded and working properly on iTunes by the time this is done. Uh, we talked about Somalia, or excuse me, not Somalia, Sudan, the the newest edition of the Sudan Civil War. I think this is, what, round three in the past 50 years? Um, so, yeah, fighting has obviously continued in the Sudanese capital of Khartoum. On April 24th, a 72-hour ceasefire was agreed to, allowing foreign nationals, civilians, and all that to clear out. Um, naturally, despite the fact there's a ceasefire, there's artillery bombings in Omdurman, which is one of the major cities. I think it's like right across the river from the capital. And there have been airstrikes in the capital 
um, conducted by the Sudanese Armed Forces against the Rapid uh, Support Forces, which is the paramilitary group that's that they're fighting with. Um, at any rate, no real surprise that's escalating. Uh, folks are getting their embassies cleared out. They're getting their civilians cleared out. People are, you know, pretty much just trying to get the hell out of Dodge because the assumption is this is going to blow up into a, another slugfest war. I mean, Somalia had one of the largest or one of the longest civil wars in recent history. I mean, I had, they had something like a 20 or 25 year long civil war throughout the back half of last century. And, uh, you know, they just they don't have a history of peace over there. They've had a very hard time maintaining kind of stable government. I think the brief taste of it we've had right now, it's about to blow up in, in, in a much worse way than it is now. What's interesting is that Egypt, as we discussed in that episode, you know, has a, a long history um, occupying and having dealings with Sudan and, you know, in a less than let's just say they have a lot of interests in that region. Let's say that. So, so far, Egypt has refused to publicly take sides in the conflict between the armed forces and the SF, uh, SRFS. And um, the, general, the general consensus is, if you study the politics of the situation, you know, Egypt in 2011 had their own little revolution where the military, you know, took control of the government and did their thing. And so the, the Egyptian government has been very friendly towards the Sudanese armed forces for sort of stepping in and taking over, but the Egypt has been very cautious not to publicly come out on one side or the other, although the assumption is because of their own little military uh, leadership situation that they're probably going to be on the side of the Sudanese armed forces. But Egypt has not come out and said it. And the reason is because the uh, the United Arab Emirates, which is a bit of a power player in the region, is kind of publicly supporting, or at least they've provided some degree of tacit support to the RSF. Um, now, why would Egypt care who the UAE is backing? Well, the question, the answer to that question is because Egypt's economy has been in the toilet for the past year. Uh, Egypt's currency has lost half its value against the dollar in the past 12 months. Inflation is running rampant. And there's also begun to have growing fears in the market that Egypt might actually default on its rather considerable, enormous foreign debt. And so the UAE has actually been providing economic lifelines to Egypt for the past several months to a year. And as a result of that, Egypt is kind of stepping very cautiously when it comes to the Sudan, because while Egypt wants to support the um, Sudanese armed forces, they don't want to piss off the UAE, who's basically keeping their country from sliding into total economic collapse. So there's a lot going on there. And uh, Egypt's really just trying to avoid pissing the OEE off. Um, As I said before, the impact on this is going to be interesting. It probably not felt most, probably not going to be felt by the West for the most part, right? I mean, the majority, at least the last figures I saw of Sudanese oil that gets exported, is going into China. And so it's not really going to hurt us all that much. But I do think if there's a crunch, it's going to be felt in China more than likely. And not a huge one, but noticeable more than likely. The, you know, at least as of a week ago, there had not been any slowdown in the export situation as yet, but there has been some increased fighting around some of the refineries or the pipelines and all of that. And I mean, honestly, one errant artillery round, one misguided airstrike, and that could shut down the entire pipeline. It could shut down the entire oil and gas production in that region. And that will have a ripple effect that will hit China. And that may have 
economic consequences further further afield. So I think it's going to happen eventually. Uh, somebody's just going to get a little too trigger happy and blow up the wrong piece of equipment, and then that's that's going to set off that chain reaction. So we'll wait and see how that goes. Very unfortunate to see that Sedan is uh, back in it, but here we are. So moving right along. Speaking of, we've got, uh, you know, ongoing wars. So we've got a little something going on, you know, Asia, where we're going to naturally talk about the Ukraine a little bit. So this past week, President Xi Jinping of China, uh, our little global Winnie the Pooh, he uh, had a call, the first call that he had with uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine. Now, it was evidently a long phone call um, talking about, you know, a potential peace process and, and all these kinds of things. China's really uh, sort of tried to step in and allege that they're going to be this big peacekeeper and they're going to be doing all these things to try and, uh, you know, bring everyone to the table. At the same time, they've also declared a, a friendship without limits with Russia, which seems very problematic. And they're, you know, not condemning the Russian attacks or not engaging in Russian sanctions. And so, I mean, it seems very obvious they've got a, a side that they like more. But China's also playing the game of, hey, we're going to come in and be peacemakers. We're going to get everyone to the talking table. It's going to be great. And, you know, China's been beating us, uh, the U.S. at that game for quite a while now, for the past several years. At any rate, Zelensky said it was a long and meaningful conversation. And Xi Jinping said that, quote, China is a responsible country and would neither watch the fire from the other side nor add fuel to the fire, let alone take advantage of the crisis to profit. And that China was always on the side of peace. Yes, China is notoriously always on the side of peace, certainly. I mean, we can count to dozens of examples of that, can't we, when their ships aren't trying to ram ours in the South China Sea or they're not, you know, uh, launching rockets or flyovers or threatening to invade the time. Well, yeah, they're absolutely always on the side of peace. Yeah, they love peace. Love it. It's good. So what does all this mean? Well, it means that they are going to insert themselves in this conflict and try and come up with a resolution. Now, I really do want there to be peace in the Ukraine. Obviously, I think we all do. The sooner that's done and dusted, the better off life will be. But the problem is that I don't necessarily want or think China is the best person to be or the best country to be creating that peace. One, they're not really neutral. And to be fair, neither is the U.S., right? We're shoveling mountains and mountains and mountains of guns and weapons and all that into to Zelensky's hands to fight off the Russians. So obviously we've picked a side on this too. But <clears throat> I don't really like the idea of China beating us. At, you know, I mean, they just got done a week ago getting Saudi Arabia and Iran to sit down at the peace table and start talking again, which is something the U.S. hasn't been able to do at all. Now they're going to get Russia and, and Ukraine talking. I mean, are we really going to let China just walk in here and get the reputation of the the international peacemaker? You know, and that pot shot. Oh, we don't add fuel to the fire. I mean, that's a pot shot against the U.S. for selling or giving weapons to to Zelensky. And so, yeah, I just you know, again, China's doing a great job of outmaneuvering the U.S. at every turn and. Rather than us focusing on China and how to deal with it, what's our Congress doing? More deadlock, more nonsense, more gibberish, but we'll get to that soon enough. Okay, meanwhile in Asia, South Korea is getting more serious about the idea of developing their own nuclear arsenal. Now, um, as of yesterday, it was announced that the uh, U.S. under President Biden 
and South Korea had reached an agreement where the U.S. would deploy a nuclear submarine to South Korea. In exchange, South Korea would agree to not develop nuclear weapons. Uh, It's called the Washington Declaration, and the U.S. has also agreed to include South Korea in more discussions on what the U.S. strategy is for dealing with North Korea. So let me give you a little bit of context. I'm not going to do a huge, giant deep dive, but let me give you a little context. So obviously, since the end of the Korean War, we have been heavily invested. We've got thousands upon thousands of troops that are stationed in uh, South Korea. We've got um, multiple air bases. We've got lots of army posts. The Korean demilitarized zone, ironically named, because I think it has more landmines in it than any other place on Earth combined. Um, And all of this to try and contain North Korea, the hermit kingdom. Now, historically, the way this has worked is the U.S. has promised to defend South Korea against any northern aggression. And part of that defense is the fact that it's been implied that the South Korea is protected under the U.S. nuclear umbrella, i.e., if things get too bad, the U.S. would theoretically consider using nuclear weapons to stop North Korea. This has prompted North Korea to, as we all know, very aggressively pursue a nuclear weapons program of their own, and they've started detonating bombs and testing rockets, and now the rockets are getting more long-range. They've got inner, inner... ICBMs that are continental ballistic missiles. And the the problem is there's been this brinksmanship, right? <clears throat> and um, we haven't really been able to get North Korea to to stand down from the idea of, of building nukes. And China's not even super on board with it, but I mean, they're not going to push them too hard. Again, I think China's just happy to see us frustrated by it, even though China doesn't really want North Korea to have nukes any more than, than the U.S. does. So, The recent problem that's come up, the recent sort of political dance has been a lot of South Koreans are asking the question, with the North now, you know, it was one thing for the U.S. to say that we would defend um, South Korea under any circumstances and that they were protected under our nuclear umbrella. But now the question is starting to become with, it was easy to say that before the North had nukes and before the North had missiles that could get across the ocean and hit the U.S., but now that North Korea has nuclear weapons, now that they have missiles that can hit the west coast of the U.S., um, presumably, uh, now there's a, a growing concern in South Korea that, hey, if this really comes out to a full-on war, how much can the U.S., how much can we really trust the U.S. to defend us? I mean, it's one thing to say that, but if the North starts pouring in and and overrunning our positions and we have to go to a military situation, is the U.S. really going to use nuclear weapons to defend us? And the U.S.'s answer has always been one of strategic ambiguity. Um, kind of the same thing with Taiwan, right? The U.S. Won't, will just basically say, we're not going to comment on what our defensive policy is for South Korea. Uh, you're protected. That's all they'll say. And that's not really enough. The, South Korea is now starting to get very nervous that they don't know. I mean, after all, if... If North Korea invades and then North Korea says, hey, stop supporting the South or we're going to nuke San Francisco, what are the odds the U.S. will take that bluff? What are the odds the U.S. will stay in that fight? And it's a fair question that the U.S. has not been willing to give a clear answer on. Um, And so there's been this growing call in South Korea for them to develop their own nuclear program as a counter to the South, or excuse me, a counter to the North. And this is a little bit of an interesting and worrying development because at the end of the day, um, 
in a perfect world, we'd love to just not have giant nuclear arsenals everywhere pointed at each other, right? I mean, that's inherently not something that, you know, on the one hand, that's a bad thing. We don't like that. I don't like having nukes everywhere. I don't like having nukes pointed at everyone. I think it's bad. It's not good. On the other hand, it has to be said that we have had few massive global scale conflicts since the advent of nuclear weapons. It's true. We stopped having world wars after we had nukes. I mean, uh, you know, yeah, there's there's still been wars, but nothing to the scale of a World War One or a World War Two, nothing even close. And so, <clears throat> there is an argument you can make that you know, nuclear deterrence does prevent things from getting too far out of hand. On the other hand, though, you've got things like what Trump said, you know, or, or um, that Muppet Marjorie Taylor Greene, which, by the way. Listen, being from Savannah, Georgia, I'm just going to say this. I'm sorry, everybody, okay? We gave you Jimmy Carter, the peanut farmer president. Sorry about that. And now we've given you Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, who acts like a Karen who's had one too many skinny margaritas at a children's sporting event and flies off the rail in Congress every 15 minutes. Sorry. I don't know why it is we can't send you good politicians. I don't know. I don't know. I just all I can do is apologize on behalf of my home state. We just keep sending you fucking lunatics. Sorry about that. I mean, well, she's a lunatic. Uh, Jimmy Carter was just incompetent. Um, nice enough guy, you know, outside of politics, but Jimmy Carter. I mean, come on. What more do I need to say? Anyway, sorry we keep sending those uh, to Washington. We're trying to get them out of our state. You know, it's kind of like that. Um, was it Greg Abbott sending? Um, I believe I could be wrong with this. Greg Abbott sending undocumented aliens, illegal nationals, that kind of thing, sending them to Martha's Vineyard, shipping them up there, shipping them to Chicago and all that. I feel like that's what Georgia's doing with its its politicians they don't like, is we just export them to Washington. Oh, Jimmy Carter, uh, uh, the super soft lefty. Yeah, you know what? Just go to Washington. We'll get you out of the state. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you, you can't ever shut up and let the adults talk. Yeah, we'll send her to Congress. That's fine. Just get her out of the state. That's fine. Just get her out of here. Uh, that's what Georgia's doing. We're just deporting all the politicians we don't like and, and getting them out of there. So, sorry. What are you going to do? Anyway, so that being said, uh, there is something to be said for um, for the one side of it where where there have been no major global conflicts with the advent of and proliferation of nuclear weapons. But on the other hand – at what point, you know, like with what Marjorie, did, which sent me on that whole rant a minute ago, you know, she's made the comment, what good is it having nukes and not using them? Trump's made the comment, what good is it having nukes and not using them? And that's a dangerous line to play. Um, so one, stop doing that. But two, yes, if you've got all these nukes lying around, eventually someone's going to be tempted to lob them at somebody. And once that happens, it starts a chain reaction of escalation, which, you know, could destroy the whole fucking planet. Um, so we need to be very not cavalier with that. Um, I get the fact that the, that there is something on the other side. Having nukes has kept everyone stable up to this point, but I just don't think South Korea building more nukes is the answer. And, um, you know, I, I will say I'm glad Biden kind of identified this and has tried to do something. To, I, I'm a little amazed South Korea went for it. I mean, deploying one nuclear attack submarine in the area, that's not super that doesn't really change the calculus all that much. Um, I do think 
giving the South Koreans more of a voice or having a little bit more info on what, you know, the U.S.'s whole policy here is we'll protect you, just trust us and don't build nukes. But also we're not going to tell you what we're willing to do to protect you. And that's a that's a fair question from South Korea. So I think the fact that, you know, Biden managed to find his way down the hallway into the meeting room with uh with President Moon and actually, you know, say, yeah, we'll we'll bring you to the table. We'll tell you what links we're willing to go to to defend you if we're going to do that in exchange. Don't, but yeah, good job, Biden. I'll give you that one. Um, I think that's important. So there we are. Presumably, we've staved off another nuclear armed country on the Korean Peninsula. There's already one too many. Okay, in Europe. So obviously, I talked at length a few episodes back about the Turkish presidential election, President Erdogan. I've mentioned it a few times since. We are rapidly approaching the date of the election, which is May 14th. And um, it does have impacts on the oil and gas industry because of Erdogan's closeness with Russia and the fact they've been sailing Russian fuel around the sanctions ever since the Ukraine conflict started. Well, Erdogan, a couple of pieces of news. One, he has had Turkish police rounding up and detaining 126 so far people suspected of being, quote, linked to banned terrorist uh, Kurdish military groups. Now, interestingly enough, most of these suspects are lawyers, journalists, and politicians, specifically those who have scrutinized previous Erdogan elections. Boy, that's awfully convenient. Oh, they're terrorists now, are they? I see. How convenient. They're all part of the opposition party. Yeah, they are. They are terrorists. And maybe they are. I don't know. But it's just awfully convenient, isn't it? Just amazingly convenient. At any rate, um, the elections are set for the 14th. Um, and if the president does not win more than 50% of the vote, there will be a runoff election two weeks later on May 28th. And this is something that in the, in the oil industry, I do think is going to be interesting and will have some ramifications to the larger markets. So it's sort of the election that nobody cares about, but they probably should. Um, you know, I've talked about in previous episodes, how president Erdogan, um, obtained sweeping powers and turned a previously ceremonial role into an office with the power of appointing judges, ministers, uh, without any kind of override, declaring states of emergency and ruling by decree, all of that sort of dictatory type shit. Um, and this is the first election where he's really kind of got a challenge. I mean, his popularity has dropped significantly, especially since the earthquakes and, you know, some of the changes he's made in the government, the, the democratic people of Turkey aren't thrilled with. So this will be an interesting election to watch, um, assuming he doesn't cheat egregiously. There, there's a very real chance he might actually lose this one. And what happens if he does? Does he actually step down? Does he try and just go full Palpatine? You know, I don't know. We'll see. On a humorous note, though, just yesterday, during a live televised interview, President Erdogan um, started to look unwell. And then the camera cuts to a scene of a couple of reporters looking absolutely shocked. And then it cuts to dark for 20 minutes. When the live feed comes back up, it indicated that, you know, and there was a lot of panic. A lot of people thought Erdogan had a heart attack on, on you know, in this live televised session. Uh, turns out that evidently he did not. He has got uh, what is said to be a stomach flu. But, of course, the Twitter, Twitter sphere was running rampant with uh, President Erdogan on the verge of death and had a heart attack on live TV. No, evidently he did throw up in a live meeting with a bunch of people, which I think Bush did that too, didn't he? It doesn't matter. Anyway, Erdogan, yes, he's, um, he's not dead. Rumors of his death are greatly exaggerated, but he has been quite ill with some sort of a stomach flu and, you know, quote-unquote, is pushing himself too hard. He has agreed to cancel several uh, – 
campaign appearances over the next week or two to give himself time to recover. And it's really interesting with his popularity being at an all-time low and the opposition. Like So with Turkey being a parliamentary democracy, there are multiple political parties in the country. And pretty much all of the political parties aside from him have banded together to get behind one candidate, which is kind of shocking. Like usually they get elected and then they try and like squabble over who gets that. No, they are so determined to try and get him out. That they've all, you know, made an alliance, all these political parties. To That'd be like the, the, the libertarians and the Democrats like publicly agreeing to run Gary Johnson to beat Trump or something. Like it just – it wouldn't happen. It would be uncalled for. It would be unprecedented. At any rate – um, with him canceling campaign appearances and him being sick and and you know kind of having this embarrassing moment on public TV, um, that's going to have an interesting impact on the election, right? I mean, are the people going to think he's not well enough to succeed? Is he going to feel embarrassed and start doing some weird draconian shit to try and like show him that he's a big tough guy? You know, I don't know. We'll see. But I, I think this election is going to be very interesting to watch. You know, for a foreign election that. <laughs> that I'm suddenly tracking kind of closely. So go figure. Uh, anyway, so that's what we got going on there. So no real impact on the oil and gas side of things, but I thought it was a humorous story that I had to share. Uh, Sydney, Australia, 28 year old U S woman is arrested in Sydney at the airport when she is caught with a 24 karat gold plated 45 ACP handgun in her bag. Um, The British Border Forces uh, commander in the area made the following public comment, quote, time and time again, we have seen just how good the ABF is at spotting and targeting, excuse me, at targeting and stopping illegal and highly dangerous goods from crossing Australia's border. Okay, I have a lot of things to say about this. First off, um, to respond to the Australian commander here, talk about how good they are at spotting uh, dangerous goods from the country. It was a gold-plated forty-five Colt. Okay, I don't know if you're a gun person or not. I've been known to dabble in a couple of uh, expensive hole punches in my day, paper hole punches, to be clear. But um, that weighs like. 46 ounces. That's several pounds. It's not a small, lightweight gun. It's a big, big gun uh, for a handgun. It's a big block of metal. Secondly, it's gold-plated. Like, I get it. Good for you guys. You caught it. I'm, Jesus, it, it's a gold-plated 45, man. Like, it's not like that was particularly inconspicuous, right? It's a big gun that was gold. Okay, so that's the first thing. Don't pat yourselves on the back too hard. You managed to catch one of the largest handguns that money can buy that was covered in gold. Okay. Not a huge win. It's a win, I'll grant you. Don't over applaud yourselves on this. Okay. Not that hard. Um, anyone would have seen that gun. It, the fa- First off, I mean, except for RTSA, evidently. I mean, how the fuck did she get on a plane in, in LAX, which is where she flew from? That's question number two. Question number three is for this chick, what the actual fuck? Why would you, why? Okay, Australia is one of the countries in the world with the strictest gun laws on planet Earth. Right, wrong, or indifferent, whether you agree with it or not, they have some of the strictest. Um, And I would argue it seems like some of the more successful gun laws. I mean, Russia's and Mexico's are incredibly strict, and yet they have lots of gun violence in those places. But 
But Australia, you know, being an island nation, they've managed to actually tone it down quite a bit. Why the fuck would you fly in there with a firearm? What you know, now she's been arrested and they're talking about you know, she's gonna have to go to trial and all this, and the penalty is up to 10 years in prison. Why would you do this? Why? Why would you do that? Like I, I'm I'm going to need an answer. I need to know what the thought process was. That's question number three. Question number four is why did you feel compelled if you're going to try and slip a firearm into Australia? Did you go with the least concealable, least obvious a golden gun? What are you, Christopher Lee in a James Bond movie? What the fuck were you thinking? What is happening here? I don't know the rest of the story behind this. I don't know. I but I really really want to. If any listen, okay. If any of y'all know anything about her motivation, or why, or anything, uh, I need you to write it in to me at the show here because I really need to know. I need some answers on what the fuck is happening with any of this. I just, I got to know. This is such a stupid thing to do um, that it beggars belief. And um, I don't even know what to uh, add. A 24-karat gold-plated 45 ACP. <laughs> like she's like a villain in a Bond movie. This is the gun she's she's rolling into Australia with. Ah, they'll never see it. They'll never. It'll be. It's, it'll blend in, disappear. Good God. Ah, what a dummy. Okay, moving on to dumb things. So the U.S. presidential election. Uh, Joe Biden this week officially announced he is running for re-election, and I don't even have to explain to anybody what that means for the energy sector. Um, so what this means is that Donald Trump is officially running, and Joe Biden is now officially running with Kamala Harris as his VP. This means that the U.S. and the world is going to get the rematch that nobody fucking wanted, but we're going to get it anyway. Now, most of y'all you know that I don't have any particular loyalty to one party or the other. Obviously, I'm going to call bullshit on each of them in turn as they earn it. And I really just can't figure – for the Democrats, I'm going to say this, guys. I can't figure out this play. I can't figure it out. Joe Biden has some of the lowest approval ratings of any president at this stage in their career. And the only other president who had approval ratings this low at this stage in their career was Donald Trump. Like, th this is the plan? We're going to wield the sarcophagus of Joe Biden out to have another go at election? We can't – there's no one else? There's no one else we could lean on to bring out? It's got to be old Joe? We're going to – like and I don't even think Joe, like Joe Biden is fundamentally not a terrible guy. I think, as far as the Democrats, he's the least like far crazy left, you know, Wokesville, you know, one. He's he's more moderate than most of them that could come out there, um, which is why they ran him in the first place. But he also doesn't have any backbone, and you know, and so that's why the super hardcore, you know, Woklahoma left has such a voice in this this current administration because Joe's 5,000 years old and looks every day of it, and this is the best guy they got to run out? Really? Okay. I guess we're going to do this again. Um, and now, obviously, we, um, you know, okay. So then on the other side, we've got Trump, a man who is embroiled in 
numerous scandals, numerous criminal investigations at this point. And, and just, you know, I mean, listen, whether you love Trump or whether you hate Trump or wherever you fall in between on that one, Donald Trump has got more baggage than an eight-time divorce A with 12 kids, okay? Uh, the man just has so much baggage to be in politics. And I'm just kind of looking at this going, man, you know, uh, everybody's kind of leaning behind the people that are just uh, going to be the biggest problem to get. You know, we y'all Republicans, Democrats, you guys do understand the whole point of an election is to get votes, right? To actually appeal to the masses to vote for your side. And this is the plan. This is the best we've got. Okay, so I guess I guess it is. This is what we're doing now. Obviously, it's still super early in the election cycle. There are people that are going to, you know, ostensibly try to challenge Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination. But I, I, I'm, it's, I mean, I don't have the statistic off the top of my head, but it's been like what a century since the last time that a incumbent president didn't get the nomination and it was it, someone else got it. I mean, that's not happened very often and not anytime recently. So I mean. Barring Joe doesn't just keel over dead or wake up and decide, oh, this is stupid. I'd rather be retired and be playing shuffleboard than dealing with this bullshit. He's probably going to get the nomination. Um, And Donald Trump, obviously, you know, Donald Trump has said that if he doesn't get the nomination, he will create his own party and run anyway. And I can guarantee you that is going to be if that happens and the Republicans know it, um, if that happens then what it's going to be is it's going to be, assuming Trump follows through with that threat, which, why wouldn't he? Um, That, obviously. Uh, But if he does fall through with it, you know, he's going to split the Republican Party pretty much right down the middle between the people that will vote for him no matter what um, and the people that will vote Republican no matter what. And um, that will guarantee Biden gets reelected. And I don't know if that's what the Democrats' master plan is for this election. Um, And so much as they seem to have any kind of a plan. And as far as the Republicans go, um, you know, I'll, I'll just, <sighs> guys, do, do one of y'all need to hire me to, to like explain to you how this should work? Like, why is it y'all both keep making the dumbest decisions? Do we need to go back to the old days where party, party bosses would pick the best candidate who would get the most mass appeal and, and have the most middle of the road ideas? Is that what we have to get to? You know, can you guys not play responsibly with your toys? Um, anyway, yeah, so there we go. That's that's the setup here. Uh, it's still a mystery if DeSantis is going to run or not. A lot of people think he's the great hope against Trump on the right. Um, I don't know. You know, there's the running theory that, oh, maybe he'll be Trump's running mate. I think there's, uh, DeSantis and Trump both have way too big of personalities to be, um, to be on the same ticket, I think. Um, and DeSantis has played it very coy with Trump, where, you know, he doesn't really go out of his way to support him, but he doesn't talk any trash about him, and so there's that. Uh, Trump did take a pot shot at DeSantis uh, a couple weeks ago at a, at a charity event calling him DeSanctimonious. Um, yeah, Donald, that's right. Just target some Republicans and take them out while you're at it. That's that's good for party unity. Great job, buddy. Great, great job. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, DeSantis is very much in many of the same political realms as Trump as far as policy and all that, it seems, as far as as much as I know about him. Um, But I think DeSantis is a little bit more calculated um, 
in this situation, I think he's uh, he's absolutely trying to wait out Trump and see what happens with these indictments. And then if it looks like Trump is misstepping and losing popularity, then he'll jump in and throw his name in the ring for nomination and uh, take his chances then. Or if not, he may wait till the next election cycle. Um, so we'll see. I don't I don't think we know one way or the other at this point. And I think DeSantis doesn't even know. I think he's waiting to see if Trump you know misses a beat somewhere with all the scandals he's got going on. So there's that. All right. Um, moving right along, of course, we've got um, – uh, but you know, here's what we'll end the episode on, though, is the best possible thing that, that could happen here. And, of course, we're talking about Kanye West's presidential campaign. That's right. The hero that we don't deserve and also probably not the one we're going to get. So Kanye, of course, as you know, is making his second bid for the White House. Kanye West, the rapper, the musician, who also goes by the name Yeezy. Now, I, over a cigar and some scotch the other night, uh, talking to Paige Wilson here at um, OGGN, was discussing the current political situation, and I realized that I had come up with the best campaign slogan for Kanye Yeezy West, okay? The best campaign slogan. Yeezy does it. Huh? Come on, that is brilliant. That is the best thing that could happen to his campaign right there. And I officially am going to say copyright. It's mine now. Kanye, if you want to use Yeezy Does It, you're going to have to pay me. I will sell it to you for a reasonable, although capitalistically beneficial price. Uh, Have your people contact my people. But yes, and I'm even going to so far as to say this, and I'm going to call it right now in front of God and my 13 listeners. If you, Kanye, do not use the campaign slogan Yeezy Does It, you are going to lose this election. I'm just calling it right now. The first one to say it, there it is. Ball's in your court. Do you want to win or do you want to lose? I don't know. That's up to you, buddy. Let me know. I've got that in my back pocket for you. So um, there it is. Anyway, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you, Yeezy does it. And I'll see you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.